Well, today we, we are wrapping up actually our study of Galatians 5. We didn't, we didn't preach through the whole book this time, but we just took this little section from 16 to 25, which you just heard me read. And we spent a few weeks looking at the concepts which are latent here in this passage. Uh, the, the dichotomy between the, uh, the, the flesh and the spirit, the battle between the flesh and the spirit. And what does it mean that those who are led by the spirit are, are not under the law and, and so forth. And we looked at some of these concepts and we've been in the actual list now for a while. And we're on the last one this morning, which is self-control or as the uh, King James puts it, temperance. And we're looking, therefore, at the main idea that the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. But as we intend to conclude our study of Galatians 5 here, I'd like to review and summarize a little bit, at least, as we make our way through, so that this feels like a summary message and not just one more um, that leaves you with a cliffhanger. So let's begin with a little bit of review, and, uh, and we'll work from there. And the first thing I would just point out is verse 18. If you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. We just sang that the law remains a rule of life to those Christ calls his own. It doesn't mean that if you're led by the Spirit, then all of a sudden sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, and so forth are now okay. Because, I mean, we're not under the law. We're not legalists, right? So now that we're led by the Spirit, then the law is no longer binding upon us in the sense that it no longer guides our life. Clearly, that's, that's not what, what verse 18 means, and the whole context of the, the chapter elucidates that. And you say, well, yeah, 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 but we're not under the Ten Commandments, but we're under the, the Spirit's leading, and the Spirit will never lead us into sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, so on and so forth, but we're just not, we're just not under the Ten Commandments. Well, will the Holy Spirit ever lead you into idolatry? Will the Holy Spirit ever lead you to take God's name in vain? Will the Holy Spirit ever lead you to dishonor your father and mother and, and so on and so forth? What, what this verse is saying is not that once we're led by the Spirit, there are no longer any laws which are applicable to us, nor does it mean that there's no longer any moral imperatives that we have to obey. Rather, in Galatians, the law constantly means the Old Covenant. And so we looked at that at length a number of weeks ago. But I just want to remind you that what we're pursuing as we pursue sanctification is not some kind of abstract and ethereal freedom from moral obligation. What we're actually pursuing is spirit-wrought conformity to God's law, not as a condition of blessedness and justification, which is the way that the Old Covenant had it set up, but rather having been justified by grace through faith, by grace through faith alone, as we just say, now the Spirit is working in us to do what the law could not do and actually make us obedient, law-keeping people. So that's a, the first point of review. Next, we should remember that in Galatians 5, the term the flesh does not mean the body. As I pointed out to you a couple months ago when we were looking at this in greater detail, there are various ways in which the term the flesh is used in Scripture. Various ways in which the phrase is uh, interpreted, is to be interpreted at different parts of the Bible. Sometimes in the Scripture, the flesh means basically <coughs> human effort or ability. But Paul can't mean that in Galatians 5. The context doesn't allow it. 
if Paul meant by the flesh human effort or ability, then Galatians 5.13 would, would read something like this. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for human effort or ability, but through love serve one another. Now, of course, that doesn't make sense because in Galatians 5.13, Paul is actually exhorting the Galatians in that very verse to put some effort into loving one another. After all, effort and ability are not bad things. They're just not worthy of our ultimate confidence, as if we could get by without God, making human effort and ability our ultimate trust, which is a real danger that other parts of Scripture warn us against, leaning on the arm of flesh instead of the arm of the Lord. (coughs) Elsewhere in Scripture, the term the flesh does basically mean the body. There are, there are places in the Bible where the flesh does basically just mean the body. For example, 1 Timothy 3.16 says that Jesus was manifested in the flesh. Or 1 John 4.2 where John says every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. In these uses, flesh, the flesh simply means the body. Now is Paul using the flesh that way in Galatians 5? No. Otherwise, we would have to conclude that the body itself is a sinful thing. Since, in Galatians 5, the flesh is something that necessarily produces sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, and so forth. These are the works of the flesh. So if these necessarily follow having a body, then the body itself is the sinful thing that... that that produces these. And this would obviously be an unacceptable theological conclusion to think that our sin comes from our body. For Jesus was made like his brothers in every respect, including a body, a body you have prepared for me, Hebrews 10 says, and yet was without sin. The body is not inherently sinful, whereas whatever the flesh is in Galatians 5 is Therefore, understanding the flesh to mean the body can't be the right way to take it. So what does the flesh mean in Galatians 5? It means something like this. The corrupt sinfulness of fallen human nature. You can plug that phrase in as a replacement for the term the flesh, and it fits in every case in Galatians 5. This way of understanding the phrase has us hearing Paul saying, Walk by the Spirit... And you will not gratify the desires of the corrupt sinfulness of fallen human nature. For the desires of the corrupt sinfulness of fallen human nature are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the corrupt sinfulness of fallen human nature. For these are opposed to one another. For the works of the corrupt sinfulness of fallen human nature are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, and so on. Makes sense, right? It fits. So this is how Paul's using the phrase in Galatians 5. Now, that's by way of review, but it's also relevant to our subject today. And now we get to the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. This is relevant to our subject today because self-control is the ability to make decisions consistent with our priorities, engaging in what serves our priorities and refraining from what does not serve our priorities. 
is basically self-control. All right? Since self-control largely and often has to do with resisting bodily urges, it would be easy to just preach it like this. Your soul has to rule over your body. Right? Your body's bad one day. You know, you're going to be free from your body, which as we have talked about at other times is a false idea that comes from Plato rather than the, the, the text of Scripture. We can't, we can't draw that conclusion since the flesh in Galatians 5 is not the body. <coughs> but <coughs> we also have to recognize that restraining bodily urges is part and parcel of self-control. We should be nuanced though. And that's why it's important to remind ourselves that the flesh is not the body and the body is not inherently sinful. Because it helps us to realize that it's not the desire for food and drink and sex and rest that are inherently sinful. It's not bad to be tired and feel like you need to sleep. It's not bad to be hungry and feel like you need to eat. It's not bad to have a sex drive. These things are not sinful. In the early centuries of church history, there was a monastic movement which embraced a lifestyle of asceticism, doing all kinds of uncomfortable things to try to make progress in sanctification. And they very much interpreted it as we need to mortify the flesh by being severe with our bodies. So they would do things like wear really, really uncomfortable underwear. Or they would go out on a platform in the sun all day without any shade. Or they would eat plain bread with no butter. And, you know, for like, I'm not talking for a meal, but I'm talking about like days or months on end. What church history teaches us is that these guys were just as unsanctified even after eating plain bread and wearing uncomfortable undies and going out and standing in the sun for long periods of time as they were before. And they, they did not actually make progress in sanctification by being severe with their bodies. Because their bodies were not the problem. It is not the body that's the problem. <clears throat> that's an idea that Christians have inherited from Plato rather than from the Bible. It's not our natural human appetites, therefore, that is the problem. It is rather an undiscerning, ungoverned, and distorted yielding to our various appetites that is the problem. So you desire sexual gratification. <coughs> if you just give in to the corrupt sinfulness of fallen human nature, then you get into sexual immorality and orgies and revelries and whatnot as in the works of the flesh, which are contrasted with the works of the Spirit. But 1 Corinthians 7 teaches us that God has provided marriage among other purposes of marriage, not the only one by any means, but marriage is provided for one reason, to be the context for gratifying that legitimate desire that God gave you. You desire food? Eat then. You desire uh, even to feast? Go ahead. From time to time. Do you enjoy a drink? God has given wine to gladden the heart of man. But don't be a drunkard. No, it's not food and drink and sex which are problems. 
It is the undiscerning, ungoverned, and distorted yielding to the desires of the corrupt, fallenness, fallen human nature, which are the problem. It's when we <clears throat> yield to these things in an unrestrained, undiscerning, ungoverned way. Now, thinking along these lines, it can, or sorry, it should be obvious that unbelievers can exercise self-control in some sense too. Consider the abundance of non-Christian men who go their whole lives without ever cheating on their wives. Consider the abundance of non-Christian men who go their whole lives without ever becoming gluttons or drunkards. Consider the abundance of non-Christian men who go their whole lives maintaining a consistent regime of exercise and punctually arrive to their jobs day after day and through study and practice achieve excellence in their vocations. And so on and so forth. In view of this, it would be ludicrous to say that only Christians can be self-controlled. And many Christians are not self-controlled. They're regularly looking at porn or overindulging in food or drink or speaking in an undisciplined way, interrupting constantly or just impulsively saying whatever comes to mind or showing up late constantly because they don't discipline themselves to get out of bed in time or start their preparations for the day in time and, and so forth. So can you see a dilemma forming here? If non-Christians can be self-controlled, then in what sense is self-control a fruit of the Spirit? And if self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, then why do so many believers lack self-control in appalling ways? Let's explore that dilemma now. Beginning with the observation that self-control is a human faculty. Let me say that again. Self-control is a human faculty. We are all able to exercise self-control to varying extents, believers and unbelievers alike. And it is evident that many unbelievers exhibit a high degree of self-control. And many believers exhibit a very low degree of self-control, sadly. <coughs> Y'all know I poke fun at David Goggins from time to time because he's such an exceptional guy but regularly says that he is not and I think he genuinely believes that he is not. In case you're not familiar with this guy, David Goggins. By his own self-description, he was an overweight 300-pound couch potato, quote, a depressed fat drunk, end quote, who is now an ultra-marathon runner covering distances of over 100 miles at a time. And he also, as if that wasn't enough, holds the world record for the most pull-ups done in 24 hours. He got up off the couch, disciplined himself to change, and did it. Moreover, he once ran something like the last 20 miles of an ultra-marathon, which was 100 miles total, on two broken feet. He just duct taped his feet so tightly that they went numb and finished the race. Hey, David Goggins did it, man. And he believes you can do it too. 
All right, David Goggins genuinely believes that each and every one of you can do it too. Okay, this is this is why I poke fun at it because he's always encouraging his viewers. He posts lots of videos up on YouTube and stuff. He's written books. He appears on talk shows and whatnot. He's an unbeliever. He's an inspirational speaker and so on and so forth. Though I sometimes find it more discouraging rather than encouraging. But he's always encouraging his viewers, stop being weak. Or in more colorful terms, which I won't quote here, the equivalent of ignore your feelings and grind, he says. Implying that all of us too, all of us could be ultra marathon runners if we just weren't so weak. If we would just ignore our feelings and grind. Alright? I don't think he's squared with the reality that different people have been endowed with different levels of potential. No matter how disciplined I become, I will never be in the NBA. And, it, and listen, it's not just because I'm already past my prime age. Even if I started at age five. Look, David Goggins is the equivalent to like, if you put your mind to it, you can do anything you want. Right? That's, that's why I poke fun at it. Because it's just not true. You cannot do whatever you put your mind to. You can't just believe in yourself. You can't, you can't just stop being weak, ignore your feelings. People are endowed with different levels of potential. And David Goggins hasn't squared with that. He is an exceptional guy. And the problem is that he won't admit that he's an exceptional guy. And he just says that everyone can do it. All right? That's why I poke fun at him. But now, the poking fun at him aside, I do have some respect for Goggins. He does exemplify an important truth, which is this. Self-control is a human faculty. It is not the exclusive domain of Christians. And some Christians could use a little more of Goggins' mindset in their lives. They're always complaining about how they can't do this and can't do that, and always saying things like, you don't know what I'm up against, you don't understand, etc. We talked a little bit about that last week in terms of faith. Do you believe what God says? Well, then maybe it's not I can't, but I can. Right? I'm here to tell you that if even David Goggins very clearly an unbeliever, devoid of the Holy Spirit. If even David Goggins can exercise self-control, then how much more, listen carefully to this, then how much more can you apply yourselves, not to running ultramarathons, but how much more can you apply yourselves to doing the things that the Holy Spirit of God says He will help you with and be successful in those things. Even unbelievers can stop looking at porn. In fact, there's a big movement, a secular movement right now, recognizing how bad it is sociologically, how bad it is psychologically, how bad it is for, for relationships and family units. And there is a secular movement against pornography happening right now where men devoid of the Holy Spirit 
are ceasing and desisting from looking at pornography. Even unbelievers can go their whole lives without sleeping with someone who is not their spouse. Even unbelievers can use moderation in eating and drinking and unbelievers can get places on time. Listen carefully here. The Holy Spirit, when we say that the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, the Holy Spirit won't make you more than human by giving you a non-human faculty that people like David Goggins don't have. That's not how the Spirit will produce self-control in you. Rather, the Holy Spirit will prompt you to activate the faculty of self-control. He will convict you of sin when you don't activate that faculty of self-control. And He'll point that faculty of self-control in the right direction, toward the right aim. And he'll carry some of the load when you pick up your end, like a friend will help you moving a heavy piece of furniture. Let's explore this idea a little bit further. Unbelievers use whatever self-control they have in service of ultimately sinful priorities. I say ultimately, because whatever they're prioritizing is not always immediately or obviously sinful. For example, an unbeliever might prioritize living a chaste life with no sex at all, or a life of faithful sexual monogamy. An unbeliever might eschew drugs and alcohol or gluttony. An unbeliever might be the most self-controlled participant in a conflict, refraining from harsh words and unreasonable statements that only stir up the conflict further. (coughs) An unbeliever might live a healthy lifestyle, and so forth. None of these things are wrong. In fact, they're admirable. They're objectively admirable in terms of the outward actions. But why does the unbeliever do these things? For God's glory and for the good of the people around him? Out of love for God and neighbor? No. By definition, ultimately, an unbeliever's self-control is aimed at something other than the right end. Let me give you a few examples of what I mean. To begin with, there are self-controlled idolaters. Worshipping false gods and exercising self-control in service of their idols. They control themselves, perhaps, like, in terms of crass idolatry, to please the block of wood in front of them. But that's easy for us to say, well, yeah, we're not idolaters. Unbelievers might control themselves in the service of not a block of wood, but a false god like Allah. Or unbelievers might control themselves in in worship of a false god like family, which is ultimate to them and has therefore become an idol to them. And so they will do everything, everything that they need to do for what is ultimate to them, namely family. Or career, whatever it takes 
to succeed in career, that is ultimate for me and I will control myself insofar as it serves the great purpose of my career. So they set the alarm clock in time to get up, get to their job, do a good job at work, so on and so forth, right? See, idols don't always have to be blocks of wood. Whatever is ultimate to you, that's your God. And people will, people, unbelievers can be self-controlled idolaters. There's a false God of some sort and they control themselves in service of their idol. <coughs> and that's sinful. Then there are self-controlled hedonists <coughs> pursuing self-gratification above all else and exercising self-control insofar as it serves that purpose. Think of all the people who use self-control in food and drink and exercise in the weeks and months leading up to Kadumen. So that they can be as sexually desirable as possible on that vile day and engage in as much pleasurable acts of debauchery as they can. You know it's true. In Barbados, the top, top times for gym memberships is like January and then maybe like June. Right? Or those who exercise self-control and finances so that they can afford to splurge on a big vacation or their dream home or whatever. Ultimately, the self-control of people like this, even if they're doing things like taking care of their bodies or being financially responsible, ultimately it's really just for their own pleasure at the end of the day. Which again, a life lived simply for your own pleasure is sinful. Then there are people like David Goggins, or even the Stoics of old, if we go back to ancient Rome, who are some brand of humanist. And whether it's the glory of the individual or the glory of the human race at large, their self-control is aimed at the great end of achieving and realizing and exalting in human potential. I could go on with different categories of people, but I think you get the idea here. The self-control of unbelievers is ultimately aimed at something other than the right ends. So the self-control that the Spirit produces and the self-control that unbelievers exercise have some commonality in that it's a human faculty. The Holy Spirit won't make you more than human, therefore, by giving you a faculty that you don't already have. That's not how the Spirit works self-control in you. But Spirit-wrought self-control, the self-control that the Spirit works in you, will be aimed at a different end altogether. The manner in which the Holy Spirit will produce self-control in you is not, therefore, to give you a, a new faculty that unbelievers don't possess, something other than human. What the Holy Spirit will do is work with you and in you to activate or to recalibrate your faculty of self-control as needed so that you begin exercising self-control in service of God's priorities for your life. In other words... The Holy Spirit won't make you something other than human by giving you a faculty that you don't already have. Rather, the Holy Spirit will make you more properly human. 
according to God's design for humans and God's standard for humans and God's definition of true humanness by restoring the proper function of your faculties, including self-control. A human whose self-control is aimed at something other than the glory of God and the good of the people around him. A human whose self-control is aimed at something other than love for God or neighbor is acting in a subhuman way. They're living as less than God designed for them to be. They are living in an animalistic way, going and gathering some nuts to store away in a tree or going to procreate because they just have urges that tell them to do so and they don't stop and think, should I, ought I? They're just acting like animals or worse. As monstrosities, when these things go awfully awry, the Holy Spirit makes us human again, truly human, as God designed us to be, recalibrating the various components of our humanity which have been so perverted and distorted and twisted because of sin. To return them back to what they should be. And this includes self-control. So to summarize, when we say that the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, we don't mean that no one but Christians can exercise self-control. That would be a preposterous claim. (coughs) But we do mean that no one but those helped by the Holy Spirit exercise self-control in the service of God's priorities. Who here believes that we have a job to do? To go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. That's not a rhetorical question. Who here believes that? Right? Yeah? Who here believes that we ourselves need to change? I need to change. You need to change. And we need to be conformed to the image of God's Son. Romans 8, 29. A little bit of liveliness. Come on, guys. I'm digging deep here for you. Dig deep for me. (laughs) Who here believes that we ought to keep our conduct among the unbelievers honorable so that when they speak against us as evildoers... They may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 1 Peter 2.12 Now, now, who here believes that any of that is going to happen without the exercise of self-control? Anyone? And who here believes that any unbelievers are living for those priorities? You see? This This is how we work it out. This is how we solve that dilemma. It's a common faculty, but we're using them totally different for totally different ends. It's two totally different lives. A self-controlled life that goes in one trajectory or a self-controlled life that goes in another trajectory. Whenever unbelievers are exercising self-control, ultimately they're still serving the flesh. They're still serving the corrupt sinfulness of fallen human nature in some shape or fashion. It's either ultimately for some kind of false god 
something else ultimate in the place of God or it's, it's ultimately for eventual, it's delayed gratification, a little bit of, little bit of sacrifice now for a lot of reward later. Like lay off, lay off chips and cake for a couple months so that you can look the way you want to look on Kadumen Day and revel in ungodliness. Right? Or it's self-control aimed at a life that is in service of God's priorities. And those are very different types of self-control, you see? So the Holy Spirit will not give us a faculty that humans don't have. And somehow you, you, a lightning bolt is going to come and jolt you into becoming the kind of person you should be. No, no, no. It's not, it's not that the Holy Spirit will bear the fruit of self-control in your life in that way. Like right now you're an undisciplined person, but then the Holy Spirit will just do something and all of a sudden you'll have self-control. That's not how it's going to work. You have self-control. You're a human. Humans have been endowed with the faculty of self-control. But just like I have legs and David Goggins has legs, and yet one has trained them by practice to serve more effectively. Likewise, some of us have used our faculty of self-control in such a way that it has become more effective by constant use and constant practice. And some, some of our faculties have atrophied. And there's very little discipline or self-control in your life whatsoever. What the Holy Spirit does, if you've got atrophied self-control, what the Holy Spirit will do is activate that through things like hearing a sermon on self-control or reading Galatians 5 and realizing, whoa, look at how undisciplined my life is. Look at how little self-control I have. And the Holy Spirit will convict you and be like, there's something wrong there. You need to work on that. You need to address that. The Holy Spirit will activate then that faculty. Or you'll realize, if David Goggins were sitting here this morning, he would realize... He's probably like number one in this church in terms of self-control. But if it was a race in a destination toward heaven, he's going the wrong way. And some of us with our more meager meager faculties of self-control are actually much closer to the finish line. And he would realize that what he needs is not to have that faculty activated, but to have that faculty recalibrated and reprioritized and sent in a different direction. The Holy Spirit does not desire for us to remain or or to make us 300-pound couch potatoes like David Goggins used to be. But neither does the Holy Spirit desire to make us ultra-marathon runners like David Goggins now is. If you're into ultra-marathons, that's fine, by the way. That's permissible. But it's not like that's God's design for every human. Rather, (coughs) the Holy Spirit desires to make us people whose faculty of self-control is active and functioning and recalibrated so that we live the kind of lives that we ought to live. Truly human. According to God's design for humans. According to God's standard for humans. According to God's plan for humans 
well-prioritized and aimed at the right things. The glory of God. The good of the people around us. Love for God and neighbor. The Holy Spirit desires not to make us then like David Goggins, but like Jesus. Who disciplined himself not for the glory of humanity. Not to pat his own ego like some insecure adolescent needs affirmation. Not to gratify himself with creaturely comforts. But rather to love and serve the people around him. For the glory of his Father. And ultimately even to lay down his life for these great ends. David Goggins is a high watermark among us humans with respect to the exercise of the natural God-given faculty of self-control apart from the Holy Spirit's influence. But even David Goggins can't be like Jesus without the Holy Spirit recalibrating and reorienting his self-control. Neither, therefore, reasoning from the greater to the lesser, neither can you nor I. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to work upon us and to work with us to live a self-controlled life in the service of God's priorities. But as I said, we ought not to think of it like a passive thing, like we're waiting for a lightning bolt to jolt us into action. We need the Holy Spirit's recalibrating work in the first place and over and over again. Reorienting our affections and our moral inclinations. Illuminating to us God's priorities from His Word. Convicting us of sin and therefore rewriting, or or, sorry, reweighting our pleasure and pain system. (coughs) Making those things which once were pleasurable to us unpleasant now. Making those things which were once reprehensible to us, pleasurable and joyful to do now in the service of God. And helping us as we actively endeavor to live self-controlled lives which are pleasing to God and subservient to His priorities. I think everything I've said so far has been clear. So now with all of this in mind, look again at what the Scripture says. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. You understand what that means, what that does not mean, how it might happen. We need the Holy Spirit and we need to be active in exercising the human faculty of self-control. When we understand all this, that we need the Spirit's help in living a properly self-controlled life, this verse becomes to us an encouraging promise. The Holy Spirit will help us. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. We're not to be passive. Sanctification is not let go and let God, as some have misguidedly said. You need to endeavor to be self-controlled this coming week in the service of God's priorities. You can't go to bed and not set your alarm and just pray that the Holy Spirit will wake you up in time. You can't, you can't 
not exercise and pray that the Holy Spirit will prepare you for an ultra marathon. That's not how it works. The Holy Spirit won't do it for you. But here is the promise of this scripture. As you undertake to live according to God's priorities. Engaging in what you should and resisting what you shouldn't. The Holy Spirit will help you. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control.